When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast, How to Be Wrong. I'm John Trapagan, and I am delighted to welcome back my co-host in error, John Cagg, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. John, it is great to have you back in the saddle. Oh, John, thanks for having me back. Uh, sometimes life intervenes, and when error or disruption occurs, sometimes you have to step away from things and come back later. So thanks for having me back. Today, uh, we have Dr. Aaron James, who's a professor of philosophy and department chair at the University of California, Irvine. Aaron is the author of numerous articles and books, including Surfing with Sartre, an Aquatic Inquiry into the Life of Meaning, Assholes, a Theory, and his most recent, Money from Nothing, published by Penguin, Penguin Random House um, in 2020. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks. Nice to be with you guys. Thank you. And um, so I'm, I'll start out with a question. It's, it's certainly not every day that we get to interview a scholar who has done the definitive philosophical work on assholes. Um, this is different. Uh, so I'd like to just start by asking how you got interested in the topic. And of course, um, it's difficult for me being a fellow academic to not find myself wondering if being in the academic world might have influenced your interest in assholes. <laughs> It did. I mean, I, I originally had the, I'm a surfer in, uh, here in California. And, uh, I originally had the idea while surfing, uh, a guy was breaking the rules of right away. And then he's the kind of guy when people complain, he'll yell at them, you know, and he won't give them an inch, you know, <laughs> create an altercation. And at, at one point while surfing, I had the idea that this was like a type, right. And that I could maybe define as philosophers do, um, a concept, you know, and, um, so I tried, I got figuring out the essence of the asshole, and then worked up a definition, but it turned out to fit some of my colleagues and some other people I knew, you know, like, and then also public figures. And then when I wrote the book, you know, I ha- had from just experiences, not just with surfers, but also from within academia. And then also looking around at political figures and historical figures, there was, you know, ample uh, resources that draw in, uh, in, drawn in fleshing out the different types of assholes and, and key examples. So could you tell me, I mean, I, I've read and enjoyed um, 
the asshole book. But um, I, I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about um, two things. One is how you have encountered error or being being mistaken. You talk about the surfer who wouldn't admit that he's wrong and therefore, and instead of admitting he's wrong, comes back and criticizes and creates an altercation. Can you think about times in your career or life where you've uh, encountered an altercation or an error in your own uh, work and how that's influenced you as a philosopher and how you've taken it? So that's one issue. And the second issue is uh, how do assholes handle error? Right. Okay, good. Um, yeah. So, um, I mean, I guess for starters, uh, within academia or within philosophy, uh, at, at least the, during the time I grew up and, um, there's a certain amount of, uh, sort of a method of showing you can defend a position, even if the conclusion looks absurd, it's showing how well you can, like, you can, uh, take any comers, answer any objection and stuff like, uh, just, and that there's, there's a point to that because you can learn, um, from somebody's ability to defend a position that you would have otherwise thought not defensive. So there's a way of like defensiveness can be built in to academia. Like, uh, um, but presumably if you're sincere about it, you don't think you're wrong. You think you're right. You know, like you're not sort of misleading people, but there can be a kind of disposition to be argumentative and defensive and sort of, uh, not absorb the force of criticisms and only think about the reasons in favor of your view and things like that. So there's a little bit of that, that maybe kind of can be baked into philosophical training, uh, but a time when I definitely learned um, to take a lesson, I'm, I'm writing a, a book that's a stories about um, my uh, misadventures in charity on an island in Sumatra. I go there to surf every year, but uh, uh, but initially about 10 years ago when I, w- with a local, uh, had ideas of doing something with the villages that are behind this bay where I surf, um, I, I was reading like MIT poverty lab stuff, randomized control trials for for medical interventions. And I was thinking maybe some kind of basic income scheme in this little village, you know, fancy sort of high level ideas. And then we met with the chief and this guy's not an educated guy. He's the head of the of a small, really small village. You know, people don't have toilets or electricity in these villages. Um, the, he's the only guy with a cell phone. Right. So we invite him into the Losman or guest house where I stay and we have a meeting about and we're floating project ideas. And then uh, the chief explained, well, look, what were they re- what they really need is not like even cash payments, uh, because he's like, if you give everybody a little bit of money, I have to give it back to them. So to just build a water tank to do like, <laughs> so right away there, you know, I, uh, you know, despite being, you know, professor of philosophy of America, you know, university or whatever, who like no knew a fair amount of development economics and the latest science. I re- you know, I realized that this guy uh, was telling me, giving me the sure wisdom about what the best thing to do was. I realized that immediately, obviously, and was and then, uh, you know, and what's really ironic is I'm a political philosopher and he uh, is teaching me a basic lesson of political <laughs> philosophy and development, which is just promote uh, basic, basic public goods for, for starters. And it's the very thing that caused the rest of the world, the advanced countries to develop. And it's something that, by the way, that that. Uh, thought in economics had not really, and still doesn't really take seriously, I think. But, um, but anyway, it was like, that's a case of learning, I guess. Um, the thing the asshole won't do there, the asshole move is to just, you know, you have your set of reasons or arguments that sort of legitimate or validate your point of view. And then you just sort of ignore or disregard, uh, the, what other people say in the, in the form of criticisms or counterexamples or uh, conflicting data. Um, and just by just 
I mean, there's assholes do this in lots and lots of ways, but one thing you can do that you can sort of relate with, like you're with your, from your point of view of your inner asshole, as it were, is, uh, you know, something like you just only pay attention to the reasons that are going in your favor of the view you already have. And you just ignore, disregard, you know, the evidence against if somebody, uh, is, has, you know, a criticism, you can sort of disregard it or find a tiny flaw without appreciating the force of it, without looking for what's the force of their criticism. How can I, have I really got it? Do I really appreciate it? Can I really learn something? So it's, it's pretty easy just by directing your attention to the side things in your favor and then just ruling out or easy or, or being settled, settling for easy criticisms of other people's views. It's pretty easy to dig yourself in. And I think we all do that to some degree. Uh, but assholes have made a, 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 a life uh, out of it <laughs> and they've dug themselves in as a, ma- a part of their basic uh, character. Um, but they're not, they're on a spectrum with, with the rest of us that so we all, we all do this to some degree. You raise a really interesting point, uh, about the, the sort of importance of culture and kind of creating, I guess you could call it a context for assholery. But, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of mistakes happen when we go elsewhere by simply not understanding the context that we go into. And I, as you were talking, I was reminded of um, several years ago, I was asked to review an edited volume uh, following the uh, March 11th uh, disaster in northern Japan, which is where I do my field work. And so I've had a lot of experience there. And um, there was one chapter in which the individual was writing about his attempts to help in the aftermath. And what he had done is he had rented a truck, filled it with food and bread and things like that, and driven up to the middle of the disaster area and then been promptly ignored by most of the local officials And he was like the way he wrote it, he was really pissed off that they weren't paying attention to him. But of course, he was in the way. (laughs) And, you know, you're dealing with in the case of Japan, this is a country that knows how to deal with things like this. They routinely have to deal with natural disasters. And so, you know, he had good intentions and yet wound up making a huge mistake Uh, I think largely generated out of ego that he could go there and sort of help and save people when in fact the people there know what to do, you know, and the government knows what to do. And so it's very interesting. It's kind of a similar sort of, you know, problem where, where failure to understand the context, to understand economics, to culture and so on can lead to a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you obviously in the first case, you have a language barrier that's making it hard to understand. But even if you say, if you have good, you know, translators or, or if someone's learned the language, even in a conversation that's supposed to be a context in which people are work, coming to some shared understanding of the needs or what's to be done, there, there's still, we still can fail to understand each other and to learn as we should. And I think the asshole really brings up vividly because you can have an argument with the asshole about whether... Uh, you know, what his entitlements are or aren't, or whether he should be more respectful, more considerate, whether he should cut in line or not. And you're having a conversation in which it really could, be, it's the kind of thing in which people who are sort of on a cooperative footing, they would come to an, a, a mutual understanding. But he, for, for despite, uh, is still just dug in and, and resistant and can't be persuaded and stuff. And of course, for the asshole, that's a strategic position in, in some sense. I mean, it's their way of getting ahead or... Um, but um, but it's it, you can kind of see still uh, uh, you can see how it's a case in which it, it the the way the asshole does it shows how we can all go awry uh, we can all go wrong 
Um, and a cross-cultural case like is one where you sort of might go in with a lot of humility because it's like, wait, like, like I'm new here. They know, you know, they know stuff. And like, so what do I have to learn is your first question. That's, that's the case in which it's sort of the easiest uh, way to sort of be primed for humility. Um, and so it's especially big flaw to sort of go in presumptuously, you know, you know, as I did myself, you know, just thinking I knew best, you know, and then had to take the lesson from the chief, you know. Yeah, it's easy to do. And, and you know, it's, a, it's an interesting point. You talk about sort of the strategy, and this kind of leads to the next question we, we wanted to talk about is, um, you know, when you when you look at one of the themes in, in your work on assholes, uh, it, it's pretty clear that you, you know, um, when it comes to assholery, there's a lot involved with getting it wrong when dealing, when it comes to dealing with other people. And so, the other interesting thing is that assholes have a way to rise to positions of power. Why is that? Yeah. Um, I suppose that there's a lot of reasons for, I mean, one, a simple reason is just that to be a successful asshole, like is that is a lot of people who are assholes are they're teenagers who never grew up. A lot of teenagers sort of get out of their asshole phase because they kind of can't manage it. But then there's a few that sort of become skillful enough and have, like they are navigating, um, you know, social currents in a sort of skillful way that lets them sort of be an asshole, but still, but still get away with it, avoid accountability. Um, and often they have to have some redeeming qualities like charisma or they're good at sports or they're really smart or something like that, because no one will tolerate uh, somebody, people otherwise. So that often can make them like potentially have leadership qualities, you know, because they have, there's have attractive things about them and they, and, and maybe insofar as, uh, you know, uh, holding or rising to positions of power, especially in highly competitive contexts, involves like breaking rules sometimes or like uh, getting ahead or being uh, unusually ambitious. You know, um, they've already kind of primed to do that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, I think it makes even matter worse is the more that they rise to positions of power, then the more they're uh, likely to have their sort of the bad effects of power uh, affecting their sensibility. So that maybe they're already prone to be an asshole, but they're only reinforced in sort of being insensitive to other people because power sort of deadens your ability to be sensitive to other people's perspectives. You know, um, I mean, the way being a subject of someone's power makes you very sensitive to their will and whims, you know, but having power over somebody often makes sort of deadens your ability to just see basic things about how they're feeling, reacting or what they think. And it gives you a standing kind of um, entitlement you can appeal to. I'm the boss. You know, I don't have to listen to you. I'm the boss. What I say goes, you know, like, and uh, that's true in some cases, but <laughs> uh, it's easily abused and turned into uh, 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 an, ab- uh, an entitlement um, uh, of a kind that deadens and uh, undermines someone's capacity to really be a leader. So, I mean, this is why they get to power and also why people in power tend to be abusive, even people who aren't assholes, but especially people who are assholes. I have a, uh, I have a sort of related follow-up to this. So um, do you think that there are disciplinary forces, not just in philosophy, as you described earlier, but in academia more generally, where universities are encouraging faculty to um, take the lid off their assholery? Uh, or do you think that there are countervailing forces uh, in effect in recent years that sort of put, you know, dampen uh, the chances for that. Uh, so that's one question. The other question is how do how do you think about your own career in terms of being a public f- public figure and an outward facing writer in terms of the stance that you need to take 
in order to not fall into, uh, you know, the little asshole that is in all of us probably. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it probably varies with discipline. I think, I think definitely philosophy has shifted a lot to become, I mean, cause there's something like we never do or rarely do that scientists do, which is we're very collaborative. You publish multi-author papers and even if there's someone running a lab, you know, like they've got you know seven co-authors and stuff like that. And so you might be more ready to credit, you know, a large number of people. Philosophers, you know, with single author papers, even dual author papers are fairly rare. And there's an older style of doing philosophy that is like you make you refer to the literature, but you're really playing up your contribution, not the not the shoulders of the giants you're standing on, but you know, but your groundbreaking, out of the box, you know, kind of thing. Sort of take credit for that and um, and minimizing contributions of others. And there's there's a culture of that for a long time in philosophy. I think it's breaking down recently. My sense is that there's there's better more better social appreciation and expectation of. And you know you're not penalized for for giving credit where credits due, and then um, 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 and being really appreciative. Uh, but I think from a university point of, or you know review and larger public outreach, maybe there's more of a sense that there it's appreciated if you're just out invisible, right, um, and getting attention. And I don't know if there's pressure to do that by be, taking credit for uh, where credits due, but there's a tempting thing that's it's easy to get attention by just you know acting like you're you know like drawing attention to yourself by making it about all about you and not about you know the the, the discipline and its advances and, and stuff like that. So sort of centering yourself and or maybe even uh, or sighing yourself as the 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 creative genius who's got news for everybody um, um, that can just get attention, right? And so maybe I don't think the universities I don't see them putting pressure to do that in a particular way, but just by sort of rewarding attention getting, then there's sort of the trappings of the things that tend to work to get attention. So that's maybe something of a trend. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, if, as for, but for on a more personal note in sort of engaging in a more personal direction, I mean, I guess for me, it kind of, I, when I started writing popular philosophy, I just, I sort of thought I had a larger sense of cause because I thought that philosophy wasn't really getting through very well into the larger public, especially not more of the analytical style philosophy or what's good about it. And then what attempts there were, were sort of just not sort of, I thought there was, I had ideas for how to do things in a different way. And so what I thought of is like a creative contribution is something I would just kind of do on the side, you know, for starters and experiment, maybe it would fail, no big deal. And it turned out to like, it, it worked, uh, but it, it wasn't, so I wasn't sort of looking for attention for myself anyway. It was more just like trying to, sh- to show a creative possibility or move things creatively in a certain direction. Um, and it, since I tried that, not necessarily because I tried it, but there was a bigger move towards <laughs> doing pop efforts a, a, in a good way. And I mean, I don't think that um, the problems that I saw um, when I started are out there now. So in some sense, I don't, I, I feel like um, my contribution to that is, uh, you know, I kind of did that. I don't have feel like I need to do that for myself, you know, um, per se. And, and to the extent I still do it, it's just because um, it's kind of an inter- it's an interesting f- sort of creative challenge and a, and a whole different set of people to engage with creatively. And that kind of just draws you out um, as a creative person, you know, like uh, and uh, and and sort of curious and interested in what kinds of creative possibilities can can emerge from, um, you know, the, the different forms of writing that you can do once you're outside of, you know, peer reviewed and contexts and journals and 
and the need to get credit within universities, you know, and stuff like that. Once that those those sort of usual incentives and scorekeeping don't really apply, you know, it opens up to do a lot of things that are really intellectually interesting or important um, that you won't get rewarded for in the conventional ways. But that's that's fine, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, it's so there's a, it kind of taps into a different set of motivations. Um, I mean, there is a temptation there if you had a little bit if you have a little bit of success to not stick with the real reasons like that I've just described to do it, but sort of do it just to sort of stay relevant or for me to be relevant or, you know, something like that. So there can be ego and vanity can kick in there. Um, but um, fortunately it's hard enough to succeed as a writer and or, or le- in getting attention that it's pretty difficult to, um, it's pretty different to consistently, you know, stay prominent. Actually, Aaron, Oh, um, it's okay if the dog barks. <laughs> it's as as the uh, head of the New Books Network told me at one point. It, it adds color to what's going on. <laughs> okay. yeah. I can stop her. <laughs> um, I, I meant yeah, to hold her good. so she wouldn't bark, but stop. Slow. Let me yell at her real quick. Okay, so we have oh, a slight. That's more color slight, than I want. Yeah. Slight, that's okay. That's all right. Um, so actually, w- one thing though that's really interesting here, as as I was thinking about this, is that so all three of us have in various ways engaged in trying to write for a, a, a more popular audience, write for a more general public, and there is a a luxury that we have in doing that. All three of us are tenured, and that. One of the interesting things about tenure that I think a lot of people don't fully grasp out in the, in the world is that it opens up the possibility, in a sense, to make mistakes, to go ahead and try something that isn't what everybody else is doing that we may not even get much credit for. I mean, I, I had, uh, I wrote, uh, an experimental ethnography as a mystery novel and the chair of my department said how much he appreciated my efforts at outreach. Uh, that really isn't what I was doing, but that's okay. Um, but it's, it's the thing that is, I think interesting is how difficult it can be to throw yourself into a position to make mistakes, unless you've got that, that sort of foundation there that says, okay, you can take a chance. And if it bombs, it bombs, if it works, it works. And, uh, I don't know what I'd ask both of you guys, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's definitely true. Um, and and uh, when I started doing pop stuff, I'd already had tenure, and um, um, for sh- and I wasn't. I also didn't want to move. I wasn't trying to sort of go to a different, you know, r- improve my academic reputation to sort of get a different, you know, academic position and stuff like that. So you know, uh, um, I like where I am. So I I didn't feel like I had anything to lose by writing a flop of, of a book or whatever, you know, you know, or a book that just didn't get attention. I mean, people would ignore it or, but I, I think, and also I had to actively, um, I had to actively decide that I wasn't, I was going to write this book for different creative purposes and not care if people that I, the people I respected most in the world hated it, you know, or thought less of me because I was doing it or, and I just decided that's, you know, I'm just going to ignore that or even kill that part of me that cares. Um, and that doing that comes from a certain security, security, right? Cause you know what, I'm not going to be unemployed, you know, like uh, I'm fine. And like, okay, maybe I won't be, maybe I won't do as well academic academically as I might've otherwise. I don't know if that's true or not, but, but I just, you know, I was just a luxury to decide, no, I don't need to, to worry about climbing at all, you know? Um, um, so yeah, the security definitely frees you to be creative and take risks and be willing to fail. And that, and the, the ability to fail is really crucially part of 
what makes the creative challenge interesting and like worth doing, um, the risk of failure is sort of part of what makes it feel like you're, you're, you're taking on a project, a creative project that's really worth it. That's really, you know, um, if it's too easy, it's, you know, you can maybe do it, but it, it definitely won't be good because it'll just be too conservative. You're not trying hard enough kind of thing. Yeah, I, th- I think that um, to go and speak to a general public after being trained as an academic, you really have to break some pretty serious preconceptions of who you are, uh, like you were saying, Aaron. And you have to also break a lot of habits of work and a lot of habits of writing that you've instilled. I know that lots and lots of my fellow academics um, used to love to write creatively and used to love um the act of writing and that's not the case so much anymore. They might, they might get their peer reviewed articles published, but their the love has been lost. And with that love, oftentimes the ability to uh, write in evocative ways that strike readers and move readers. And you really, uh, I mean, I think I might've said this the first podcast, but the first trade book I wrote was just trashed by my editor. I had to rewrite the whole thing. Um, she was very close to um, canning the whole project, which is the closest that I've come to like absolute uh, academic failure uh, in a long time, uh, probably since I was in graduate school. And um, sticking with it has been one of the most meaningful um, processes, like the mean, meaningful steps that I've taken, um, because of the risk of failure. And, um, when you publish something for a general audience, it's not, it's, it's also that the risk of failure is real in more than just, um, I haven't fit myself into a particular academic niche. It's that, I haven't said anything worth it's it's that I haven't said anything that can strike a large enough readership in a meaningful enough way. And if you're not willing to just pander to the, um, to the moment, then you really feel like you've failed. In other words, you, you've, you've stuck your feet in the, your heels in the ground and you've tried to speak to a wider readership, but you've not been able to, and that can be, very daunting, I think. Um, just one last comment about um, moving from academic to general audience writer writing. Um, the The process for me was also the hope that you could shift the discipline, the, the entire discipline of philosophy toward a more uh, humane sort of outward looking, not so insular siloed perspective. And one way of doing that is to write books that um, appeal to a wider audience and then shift university publishers who also want to sell books toward that type of perspective. So, um, university publishing is often just a tenure, tenure machine, uh, tenure making machine. Um, and, uh, and trying to push beyond that, I think is both very risky, um, uh, but was my, was kind of my intent, um, in moving into you know, non-academic writing, but you're right. The, the, the security of having tenure and the security of having a fallback was necessary for me to move into something else. 
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a strange environment if you think about it. Because on the one hand, that security exists through tenure. But then when you look at the ways the structures are around it, they're very much designed to generate conformity to a pretty narrow idea of what scholarship is. And it's even in things, you know, like the, you know, John, as you said, the publishing industry, um, think about academic books and, and how they market them. Well, they charge huge amounts of money so they can sell them to a few libraries to make enough to cover their costs rather than, well, you know, maybe if we market this to a wide range of people who are just interested, um, we'll cover our costs that way. But I mean, I've encountered this several times with uh, publishers that work in anthropology um, that they're really primarily interested in just hitting up libraries for a lot of money. And when you kind of push them and say, well, why don't you lower the cost so more people can buy it? They, they don't want to do that. And uh, I think that's that kind of constrains us in terms of the ability to go out and take chances and to, you know, see if we can throw something out there, see what the public might do with it or not do with it. And it makes it harder for academics to talk to the public. It actually um, kind of reinforces the ivory tower. It, it creates the sense that we're off in our own little world and we don't talk to anybody else. But there are a lot of folks that really would like to have that voice that's out there. Can if I can, I would like to um, ask Aaron a specific question on this. So um, your new book on charity that you're working on currently, um, I also imagine that has to do with epistemic humility generally and then epistemic humility. And then um, could you tell us a little bit more about that book? And also could you tell us um, what the motivations for that book obviously are, uh, which you did a little bit to begin with? Um, but then also what sort of, um, previous works you're, you, you sort of thought about in terms of inspiration. So I'm thinking if I come out of an American philosophical canon and Jane Adams, who worked in Chicago, uh, with, uh, at Hull house, um, wrote a piece called, um, the charitable visitor, which is a story of basically, um, a Victorian woman trying to go and help individuals in uh, urban Chicago neighborhoods and failing for precisely the reasons that you're uh, describing. And I was curious whether, and this was in the 1890s, 19th, first decade of the 20th century. And I'm wondering what other sort of four, you know, uh, sort of predecessors, intellectual predecessors inspired you? Yeah, great. Thanks. Um, I'm excited about to talk about this right now because it's uh, thinking about a lot. Um, I'm doing something a little out of the box, like in terms of academic. Uh, so I, I'm trying to write a story-based sort of philosophy. It's a set of stories, things that have actually happened to me through my 40s and um, retelling the story sort of for myself uh, with philosophical lessons. And then there, I'm uh, the out-of-the-box part is I'm using, um, I'm kind of using uh, Don Quixote, as a kind of frame or to frame my relationship with, um, well, the adventures for one thing, but frame my relationship with the local guy who I work with. So like, he's my, 
he's my Sancho. <laughs> and I'm like Don Quixote because because I have this um, like, you know, from academia, which is this quasi medieval thing. And then there's this nightly you know ex- excursions and uh, it's done with sort of idealist uh, idealism. Um, uh, and, and a sort of kind of quasi nobility that you acquire when you come through, um, you know, academic scholar training. So, but, and especially if you're a philosopher, a philosophical cogitator, you know, who's good at skilled at building intellectual castles in the sky, you know, then the joke version is I'm out on the ground, you know, uh, uh, ignoring factual questions as philosophers do and causing trouble for everyone, you know? Uh, so, and then, so that's a, that's a fun way to sort of frame a lot of the, the stories, um, but it also, I mean it as a kind of critique of a certain strand of both thought and development and in philosophy that comes out of sort of the utilitarian school. Like, so here, Peter Singer, for example, has a famous article and came out in the early seventies. Uh, and the, the, the key idea is that, you know, you're, if you stumbled across a drowning child in a pond and had to wade in, get your pants money to wade in and save their life, you definitely be obliged to do it. But then he thinks our relation to the global poor and the rich world is exactly the same because foreign aid organizations are, in effect, just standing there ready to pull these children out of the pond, save lives, and now all you have to do is pump your credit card into the website. So that's, and then he gives a utilitarian kind of argument for why we ought to do that and massively change our standard of living. But then, so one, I taught and, you know, I've learned that was sort of staple of my moral philosophy education as a graduate student. And um, I've always resisted in various ways, but taken it very seriously. And then I taught it for years, you know, when I teach moral philosophy. But then uh, when I started going to this island and, and I happened upon these villages, you know, it was sort of like a joke. You don't see drowning children. There's what there are smiling, happy, giggling ch- children, you know, like uh, and jumping all over and playing. And like, there's no one to go save in there. Why, but it's nothing so easily as putting a stick out, you know, and like pulling somebody out. And um, it's much more difficult and um, uh, thing to, to, to do, you realize. And, and the thing that uh, that's grown out of this, out of Singer's influence is called the, you know, effective altruism movement. And there's a big focus on evidence science evidence-based interventions based in sort of cost-benefit analysis and stuff like that as a, as a way to try to reassure governments and billionaires and donors that their money's doing the most good. And, and I think that that is uh, part of, that's all based on a big mistake uh, that's uh, about uh, wanting to know things that you can't really, that we don't really know or can't know or need to know uh, because the thing we know already is the basic, the thing the, the chief uh, reminded me of in my original story, which is that um, you can, you know, the basic key to the development is just building basic infrastructure like uh, water, clean water sources, toilets, um, basic stuff. That's how you can move. The, people will become less sick from diarrhea and then won't die if you just can change all the, intervene in all those things across the board. That's a very low tech problem. The constraints on that are you need cement and you need rocks, you need sand, you need workers who are around and they can build and you need someone to organize the teams. So that's a, that's, a, that's a something, but then you need money, but the money can just be created through banks from nothing. So it's not even really a constraint. Either. This is related to my pro- book project, money from nothing. Um, uh, and so it, this is a much simpler development is a much simpler low tech problem and it doesn't require a lot of science. We don't need randomized controlled trials to give us reminders about uh, to, to reassure us about what how how uh, the poor, you know how development can happen, even in the very poorest villages. And um, and um, and it's you know it's it's 
something to do on a large scale is politically complicated, but, but, um, uh, we sort of already know enough to really do a lot. And there's a way in which we're demanding the wrong kinds of reassurances about where our money's going, et cetera, that's sort of misplaced. Um, so that's the bigger point. So I'm defending ineffective altruism <laughs> not based on like latest science about what effective interventions are, just the stuff that we already know. That's the same basis for the way how the rich world uh, developed and move the, move the needle on death rates and reduce sick premature's death and sickness and death and stuff. Just so we, just so we know, when is this, when do you anticipate the book coming out and, and what do you intend, intend it to be called? Yeah. So I've still, um, uh, I've still, I just, I've written like half of it and I've got a plan, but I haven't, um, haven't, I haven't given to my agent to sell it to a press, uh, yet. So, um, I don't know. I have no idea when it'll come out. Um, I just kind of got in the flow when I was on my last trip to Sumatra this summer. I it all kind of all pieced together how it all fit. And then I got writing and just wrote half of it. So, um, and then, uh, so since, um, since the book isn't just about charity, it's, all, but I'm also mixing in like, uh, it's like a story of my midlife for framing my midlife in my forties and the lessons I learned about life in general. Um, uh, not just uh, like not just the misadventures, but also the very serendipities that happen. That including things like my love life and and midlife and uh, you know reflections and stuff like that. That's all kind of there's interwoving streams for all that. So um, it's called um, and the j- one joke in the book is that when I go to Sumatra, there's no possibility of dating or sex. It's not like going to Bali, you know, where people go to party or whatever. <laughs> so, so it's so the book is kind of like a sad version of Eat, Pray, Love because. You, like you go, you're leaving home, which is like a disappointment in various ways. And, and but instead of winding up in Bali and finding love and meaning, you know, um, uh, you go to Sumatra. There's there's no sex in Sumatra. <laughs> there's no love. There's meaning. But and what I get as a consolation prize is friendship. So kind of which. Uh, so uh, so the book title is tentatively um, sexless in Sumatra, uh, misadventures and serendipity in life, uh, love and charity. Okay, that's very nice. Well, that that sounds great. I I will look forward to reading that. And you know, one of the things that I, I think clearly comes up from what you've been saying is is the importance of introspection. And and obviously, this book that's coming out deals a lot with in, introspection. And and you know, we were exchanging emails setting up for this. You you, you talked about the idea of uh, my side bias, and um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and, and how it relates to cultivating humility and perhaps even uh, cultivating intellectual humility, because I think that's you know very, very relevant to what we're talking about. Right yeah. Now. I mean, a, a quick uh, Don Quixote connection, by the way, uh, uh, is that um, Don Quixote is, you know, he, he's he's a famous rationalizer, right? He kind of the facts in the, in the situation he can twist in some crazy way that's really entertaining, but it's he's really a kind of delusional. I mean, he. He's mad in a good way. I mean, he's not settling for the world as it is, and uh, he's insisting on the way the world ought to be. But he's also just mad. He's just he's crazy because he's the way he does. He's, he lives in delusions and rationalizations that are really divorced from uh, reality. So that's a that's a key uh, theme in the in this book that I that I want that I'm developing throughout with philosophical tools. And one of the things uh, I, one of the things I think of when I think about how we actually do uh, sort of rationalize and live in delusion, how we're out of touch with, uh, with the reality we're in front of or, or what we're like is what psychologists call my side bias. It, I alluded to already something 
or earlier, um, what gets called confirmation bias. That is, if you already think, have a view about something, then we, all, every, all of us have a tendency to focus on and find evidence that fits how we already think and ignore evidence uh, that's that is inconsistent with what we think. Um, and so if, you, if you're directing your attention to all the stuff that goes in your favor, then you can kind of easily become dug in and convinced and out of touch with the reality in front of you, the evidence that's in your face or the, the evidence that the criticisms that people are giving you and say in conversation. So, but the, the interesting thing about my side bias is these psychologists have pointed out, they say, well, look, the thing we suffer from confirmation bias is, is really a kind of specialized things because we're, we're, we're very good at criticizing other people's views. We're bad at accepting criticism of our own views or seeing flaws, but we're extremely good at criticizing and seeing flaws in other people's views. So that's, this is one way that assholes are good at. So they're, they become, they're very good at, at, at rationalizing their own standpoint, but they're also very good at criticizing other people's views. So to, to diminish and minimize the objections or complaints, the things they could learn from the other. So they're sort of immunized from learning. So, um, um, so that's, that's, uh, that's a way that I think that that's a way of thinking about the role of the role of what we tell ourselves, uh, both to sort of reinforce what we already think, but also to criticize others in a way that makes us feel like we don't have to appreciate what they can teach us. That's a sort of a major obstacle to learning. Um, and then there's a cool upshot of my side bias, which is that, um, uh, which is that in a, in a, if, if we can have a certain kind of cooperative discussion or cooperative footing with each other, then even though we both suffer my side bias, that is we both are good at criticizing each other, but we're bad at, we're bad at criticizing our own views. Then if there's at least a, there's a kind of cooperation, we can, um, we can, a way we can learn together. And that is to say, if we can both go into, I can basically, uh, if you're good at criticizing my views and I'm not good at criticizing my own views, well, then I can learn, I can make up for that flaw for the, my side bias by just taking seriously your criticisms, you know, learning as best I can from your criticism. And then same way you, for me, like I'm better at criticizing your views than you are criticizing your views. And so you can make up for your own, my side bias, um, uh, by t- really learning and taking seriously um, my criticisms of you, right? So, so a kind of a kind of dialogue that's really focused on you know creative learning and collaboration, what we can learn together by criticizing each other. That's that is a way of correcting the sort of ways that we are sort of dug in in our own perspective in a in a deep way. Assholes do an extreme version of it, but we all do it to a certain degree. Um, and by the way, I think it's what. Like Cervantes has Don Quixote dramatizing in a in a um, in a in a very novel way at the time, you know, in a way that set the stage for the modern novel and um, defined modernity and such. So, yeah, yeah, it seems that um, <laughs> that's something that's uh, rather missing in the political discourse in our society right now is is that ability to listen to the critique of the other and at least give it some credence. And I think at the same time that goes with that is is um, valuing the other as a person with ideas, even if you don't value the ideas they happen to have. And and I think that's a kind of a, a fundamental component of, of this is that, that if we do that, then we can learn from other perspectives. Even if we don't in the end really agree with their perspective, we can learn from that. And that generates a certain degree of humility um, because it just forces us to introspect. It forces us to think about our own perspective. Um, 
So, um, well, let's see, John, do you have any other questions you want to ask? I have a question about surfing. Okay, so, let's, let's go. And so, <laughs> you're talking to a very, very bad surfer, but, mm-hmm. one, but one who really, really likes it a lot. So what can surfing tell us about humility? <laughs> yeah, well, it, it can really teach you a lot um, because, um, well, if you know, if you've tried, it's really hard thing to do. Like none of your land-based mammalian skills really transfer over once you're like trying to paddle yourself through breaking waves, let alone time the waves when they're coming after you've figured out how to sit on the surfboard. And so it's even from a basic learning point, or even at more advanced levels, you know, you're pushing yourself into maybe dangerous, bigger uh, waves. And, um, you know, you, you, uh, can just, you get caught inside and you have to duck dive, you know, like what feels like a hundred giant waves that might smash you, you know, to the bottom and hit, hit, make you hit the reef. Uh, so, I mean, like to actually do the beautiful thing you're trying to do, which is just ride this, ride this wave. I mean, uh, you know, you really feel up against uh, nature. You feel a tremendous sense of respect, uh, in the, for the sublimity of the ocean and the power it has over you. And then the only way you're ever going to get to do this beautiful thing, ride the wave is if you're ready to learn everything you possibly can about how to navigate and make it happen. And so being a surfer, just to get half good, let alone really good, I mean, it's really founded on a kind of position of humility and respect for the wave to, to constantly sort of update and refine your skills through greater attunement. I mean, you have to be ever, not just attuned to what the ocean is doing, but ever more attuned to the constantly shifting conditions and what, you know. And so really surfers um, have, there's kind of an antidote to assholery built into it because because you, it just is constant learning to, to be as attuned as you have to be in a way that surfers love and celebrate and uh, really want to make the sort of center of their whole life. And then that's why it's all the, all the more remarkable when there's the occasional asshole surfer <laughs> like, man, you, know, you know, who can't, who, who has, isn't learning that the, all the lessons about wave learning, you know, also apply to people, you know, like, you know, and, um, and there's an upshot there, a surfing lesson, a surfer argument for not being an asshole with people actually is a little bit like this because the joy the surfer understands of being attuned and open to learn in the waves applies to the joy of, applies to people as well. So there's a lot to, of, it's part of creative engagement with people, but even just ordinary interpersonal interactions, you know, the more attuned you are to other people, the more you can learn from them, the engage with them, or, uh, uh, respect them as sources of information or insight, as you were suggesting, you know, that's a joyous thing because all your social relationships become, you know, more joyful, more attuned, more like surfing, you know, surfing the social scene um, in a way that can, is really part of a good and meaningful life. Um, so you, in this way, you can look at the asshole who doesn't get that as just kind of missing out, like like somebody who doesn't get surfing is like, well, you know, <laughs> it's wonderful. I don't know how to explain it to you, you know, like uh, uh, so the assholes in that position with respect to social relations. I mean, it's also, I think, really important that when we're in our social social lives and academic lives, to also encourage a more surf-like and less ass-like, asshole-like perspective in 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 younger people. So life will be better for you and everyone around you if you can just muster just a little bit more of the you know ebb and flow of life rather than pushing your fist into the jaws of experience. So um, I'm, I've really enjoyed this conversation. John, do you have anything else? 
Well, I, the one thing I just did want to say that, that struck me about this, well, I think surfing was a great question, John. And, and I, I will say that as I was listening to Aaron talk, it, it, it struck me how much trying to master a skill has this effect regardless. And I, I was thinking as Aaron, as you were talking, I was thinking about my son who was a very serious baseball player all through high school. And, you know, damn it, hitting a baseball is just really, really hard to do. And you fail most of the time at it. And, you know, it is interesting how much that teaches us to be humble about what we can be good at when you're just, you know, constantly faced with the fact that the thing you're trying to do is ridiculously difficult and you're going to suck at it most of the time. And eventually, if you work at it long enough, you'll get good. But, um, and even good, you know, like in baseball, good means, well, you get a hit a third of the time, <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's just, I think it's really an interesting observation. It, it takes us away from kind of the, the sort of the intellectual side of things and puts us into just the, the physicality of trying to learn a skill. And, and that, that really in a, has a way of deflating ego when you really get involved in it. So that's a wonderful question and, and great observation. Um, so yeah, beyond that, I don't think I have any um, additional questions. Aaron, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up? Uh, no, that's good. This has been a great discussion. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this has been a really wonderful conversation. Uh, I've enjoyed it. And so, um, you know, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on How to Be Wrong. It, it really has been a pleasure. This has been really fun. And uh, uh, I look forward to reading more interesting uh, work. Uh, it's just I, stuff I've read of yours so far, I've really gotten a lot out of. So thank you. Well, thanks so much. That's really great to hear. 